1 Samuel chapter 20. So we touched on this chapter last week. And if you remember where we were at last week, uh, we, we talked about when things go sideways. So in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, everything is going right for David. You know, he's, he's come forward as this young boy to fight the giant. And, and nobody believes that this makes any sense at all. And yet, and yet God works through him. He's got confidence in God's ability. He's got confidence in what God can do. And we, we see that in chapter 17, verse 35, as, as David is speaking to Saul, the king. Verse 36, rather. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And so David goes forward with this confidence, and he strikes down the Philistine, and he's on top of the world. And then in the next chapter, we see that things start to go south, because as he rises in popularity, and as he rises in, in the esteem of the people, Saul starts to feel threatened. And, and so Saul throws a spear at him in one of his fits of rage, and, and the same thing happens again in chapter 19. And, and Saul begins to plot David's death. He, he tries to set it up so that he goes out to war and would get killed there, but that doesn't work. And so he, when he offers his daughter to David in marriage, he has him say, well, I don't need a bride price from you, but I do need a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Maybe that'll get David killed. And it doesn't work. David brings him... 200. You know, David is so effective and God is so with him that nothing Saul can do will get him killed. And so in chapter 19, Saul just straight up tells Jonathan, his son, and his other servants, I want David dead. And at that point, Jonathan is able to talk Saul out of that, talk him down off that cliff, like, this doesn't really make sense, Dad. And Saul backs off, but then he has another one of his fits of rage where he tries to pin David to the wall again. David has to flee, flees to Samuel, and we come to chapter 20, and, and David is, he doesn't know what to do, and so he goes to Jonathan, his dear friend, Jonathan, who is someone who is, whose soul, chapter 18 tells us, was knit to the soul of David, and, and David goes to Jonathan and says, in chapter 20, verse 1, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. And so what you have in the rest of this chapter is their discussion about whether this is actually the case, and then their plan to determine whether, okay, does Saul actually want to kill David, and then their plan for how to respond if he if he does. Um, what, what are we going to do? But what I want to do as we look at, at chapter 20 today is really focus on friendship and the lessons we can learn, the, the characteristics of godly friendship that we can take from this friendship between Jonathan and David. Now, to be honest, I think what I might have even said last week was that I was going to take this and do like a, a topical sermon on friendship and kind of use this as the base. And I, I just realized, honestly, meditating throughout the week, I don't know enough about friendship to do a topical sermon on friendship. I, I'm still learning so much. Um, 
And so I just want to see, three, I'm, I'm not going to like bounce, we're, we're going to look at a couple other parts of the Bible, but just supporting what we already see here in chapter 20. So this is not exhaustive on everything you need to be a good godly friend, but, but there's four characteristics here that I think we can see of godly friendship that I think will help us. And, and I think as we look at this chapter, we, we see our own need to think about this, at least if you're reading some of the, the popular commentaries or thoughts about this, uh, even some of the teaching that you'll hear on this chapter, is, is people will look at this friendship between Jonathan and David, and, and many modern readers will look at this and see, well, there's, there's got to be something homosexual going on here. Uh, that's, that's a pretty common thing you, you'll hear talked about in reference to them now. And, and because this is such, such a deep friendship, and in, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, after uh, Jonathan has died, David, David does say some striking things. Uh, he says in 2 Samuel 1, 25 and 26, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That's, that's a pretty intense statement, right? And, and so many people today would read that and go, well, there's got to be something more than just friendship happening here. But setting aside for a minute just other considerations, I think that tells us more about ourselves than it does about what's happening in the text. That we don't have a concept of particularly male friendship that, that has categories for, for two men loving each other that much without it having sexual overtones. Like that tells us more about our culture and, and the, the fact that we can't even process deep friendship that doesn't have, quote unquote, something more to it. That, that tells us how small our understanding of friendship is. I mean, there, there's better biblical arguments for that not being the case. Uh, for one thing, the, clearly in scripture, homosexuality is portrayed as, as a sin. It, it's sinful to, to engage in sex with someone of the same gender. And, and the author of First and Second Samuel does not shy away from showing us David's flaws, including his sexual sins. So in Second Samuel 11, we have very famously the story with Bathsheba. The, the author's not afraid to tell us when David is in sin, and he never gives us an indication of that here. He never portrays this as some great fall that David has a, a friendship with Jonathan. This is actually portrayed as a very positive thing, and so we, if we believe that Scripture is cohesive, that it's got one divine author holding it all together, it's got one voice that it's speaking with, well then we, we should see that this is a, a noble and a good friendship that is in, in line with all of the ethics that God teaches elsewhere. But, but again, I think, I think that just tells us so much about how, how limited our concept of friendship is that we can't, like it's hard to imagine two guys loving each other that much. So, four things, four characteristics of godly friendship that we see in this passage. The first is that godly friendship is God-centered. might sound a little redundant, but um, 
some, some of the things we're going to talk about with friendship this morning, like you could come in here and not be a believer and some of it's still going to be helpful. Like it's just good friendship advice and friendship exists all over the world. We're, we're social beings made in the image of a social God. And so like all human beings long for friendship and hopefully make some strides towards it. But, but godly friendship has some different dynamics that begin with a God centeredness. And we see this in, well, if you go back, like we, we referenced there in chapter 18, where their friendship begins, as soon as David, chapter 18, verse 1, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And that, that, that being knit together was based on a mutual love for God, a mutual faith and confidence in God. We saw that in Jonathan's life in chapter 14 where he boldly goes, and we talked about some of this last week again, where he went and fought against the Philistines, against crazy odds. And then he sees David doing the same thing in chapter 17 where he goes and he fights against the Philistine. And, and, and he sees that. And like that's, there's just that deep connection of we've got the same priorities. We serve and love the same God. And here in chapter 20, between verses 12 and 23, there's eight references to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, plus one more reference to the, the Lord, the God of Israel. It, this, their, their friendship is soaked and saturated in this, this God whom they both love and worship. That their, their bond isn't just, it's not just the way we normally think of friendship as being built around some kind of common interest or life stage. We often think of Jonathan and David as being close in age, but in fact, there's uh, one of the commentaries I read last night, he, he did the math and you, you put it together, there's got to be at least 27 years between these two guys. You know, when, when David is is going into service in Saul's army. He's got to be at least 20 years old, according to numbers, to serve in the military. And at that point, Jonathan had already been serving since the third year of Saul's reign. And David is 30 years old when he becomes king in the 40th year of Saul's reign. So if you wrote that all out in order, not the order I said it, but in the right order, you would get, there's at least 27 years between the two of them. At least. They're, they're not bound by, oh, we've got similar experiences, our kids are the same age, we're at the same point in marriage. Like that, The normal things that connect people aren't what connects them. They're, there's something deeper that connects them. It's their deepest loyalty, their loyalty to God. The deepest friendships come not from having similar surface-level interests. Not that those things are bad. Like, we can talk about and enjoy things of this earth with one another. Like, it's good to have friends that are at the same stage of life where you go, man, my kid didn't sleep last night. <laughs> Mine either. You know, like, that's not a, a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with some of you being Vikings fans and always having to deal with them losing. Like, that's, that's fine. But, but that's not where the deepest connection, the deepest friendship is going to come from. 
I just want to read a section of Ephesians chapter 4. So the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, the unity that there is in Christ, in, in the church. I just, I just want you to listen to the language here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he, he keeps on going there, talking about how God gives different gifts to the church to, to build the church up so that the church might be knit together in love. But that's true in a broad sense in the, in the church, that all of us are to be knit together in this love because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, doesn't it, wouldn't it not stand to reason that like the, the deepest connections we can have with people are going to be rooted in having that same Savior, that same, our, our, the, the basis of everything that we believe is, is rooted on, rooted in what Christ has done for us. And our biggest hopes for the future are tied to the fact that that same Lord is coming again and we get to spend eternity with him. We've got these, these same core values. So I've got a, a really good friend that isn't a believer. And... And I enjoy talking to him, like hanging out with him, love spending time with him. Like we've got a lot of things in common. But but you can at some point you can only go so deep with someone who doesn't share the most important things about you. Right? Like this is this is part of why Paul in First Corinthians tells people not to marry those who aren't believers. It in the Old Testament, that, that, that law that Israelites weren't to marry non-Israelites was largely to keep the people of Israel pure from the outsiders. There's some of that probably going on with Paul's instruction to New Testament believers, but, but largely what you see in the New Testament is that it's not that uncleanness comes to you. Cleanness actually goes out. Um, I probably shouldn't have brought that up without more time to flesh it out. But anyway, the, I think what's actually more fundamental is that you're supposed to have a, a, a one fleshness, a, a unity in marriage that expresses the unity of Christ in the church. And that kind of deep unity isn't possible apart from sharing Christ. And, and, and I don't think that's, I think that's just as true in any other friendship. Like, you aren't going to get to that deepest level apart from having a God-centered relationship. The second thing we see about godly friendship is that it's self-sacrificing. So Jonathan obviously does not want to believe that his dad is out to kill David. right? We, we, and again, we talked about this a little bit last week. It'd, it'd be pretty easy to brush off the Saul throwing a spear at people thing because Saul is crazy. Saul goes into these fits, and it would be easy to just go... 
you're blowing this out of proportion, David. I know it was scary, but man, you're quick. It's okay. Like, just just don't hang out when his spear is out. You know, that there there would he's got a lot of reasons to not want to believe this, because Jonathan knows at some point he's going to a have to decide where his allegiance lies. But if if he even if his allegiance lies with David, he's still the king's son. The, the king who is the anointed of the Lord. Like God put Saul where he is. And so his, his faithfulness to David means he's not going to give David up to Saul to kill him. He's, he's not going to do David wrong. But it also means that their relationship in an earthly sense is going to end. So he doesn't want to believe what David is saying to him. But in verse 4, right after David has said, you know, the reason Saul said this is that he, he knows that you I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And in verse 4, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. The easy thing for Jonathan to do here is to just stay with the, no, you're crazy man line. No, no, really... I really think you're just blowing this out of proportion, David. Don't worry about it. That would be the easy thing for him to do. And instead, he agrees, okay, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. I, I'm here for you, heart and soul. And then the entire scheme that they developed throughout this passage, both of Jonathan going to Saul and and going without David, <laughs> you know, David's not going to be present at this feast that, that David is expected at. And Saul knows that Jonathan knows where David is. Jonathan is putting himself in harm's way, both in the, the execution of that, determining where Saul's at. It, it almost gets Jonathan killed. You see there in uh, verse 30, John, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan nearly gets killed for simply speaking up for David. And, and not only is he putting his life at risk in order to defend David here, but his, his embrace of the fact that God has anointed David to be Saul's successor is completely at expense to himself. He's the one with the most to lose by David becoming king because he's the son who is in line. And we saw again in chapter 18 that he seems to recognize this early on in their relationship. Chapter 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow, and his belt. Jonathan is totally, 
totally self-sacrificing and asking David, or just doing what's best for David. He's not out for Jonathan's own good. He's in this for David's good. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Love seeks not its own interests. And if you look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Godly friendship, true love, it's not seeking its own good. I wonder if you remember the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells that parable where, where this man is beaten and bloodied on the road and two religious leaders walk by him and then this bad guy, the guy from the outgroup, the guy that nobody likes, the Samaritan comes by and he helps him and he takes him and at his own expense puts him up in, in, in a place where he's getting medical care and being fed and taken care of. Jesus told that parable in response to a question, and the question was, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus had just uh, asked them what, what the law required, and they know it's to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy doesn't want to deal with that because he realizes he's implicated that, oh, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. So who is my neighbor? Like, who can I love and get away with and it's going to be okay? And Jesus' response to that, then when he says, who, at the end of the parable, who, who was the neighbor? Well, the Samaritan was the neighbor to the man who was hurt. So Jesus' response to who is my neighbor is not, well, this group is your neighbor. And it's not even everyone is your neighbor. The response is, be a neighbor. Be a neighbor to those around you. And I think the principle here for us is, is that if we want deep friendship, if we want to be, we want to have good friends in our lives, then the first step for us is being good friends. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, we think of David as the kind of the hero once we get to this part of First Samuel all the way through Second Samuel, but but the friend who's really being a friend here is Jonathan. Jonathan is the one that this is costing. Jonathan is the one putting forth the effort. I mean, David's in a bad situation. It's not like he can do much here. But but Jonathan is really the hero of this part of the story. Jonathan is being a good and godly friend by, by not looking out to his own interests, but looking towards the interests of David. The third, the third characteristic of godly friendship, and this one was probably the most surprising to me and the most that I really had to think about this week, is that godly friendship recognizes that friendship is a two-way street. Friendship is a two-way street. So look at, at the request that 
that Jonathan makes. So beginning in verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan basically goes to David and says, However this turns out, don't forget me and don't forget my family. Jonathan recognizes that he's not doing this out of any selfishness, but he's saying, okay, there's, there's a genuine love between us. There's a genuine friendship here. Don't forget to hold up your end of this. Don't forget to hold up your end of the deal, David. I'm, I'm putting everything on the line for you. Please don't forget me and my family. Verse 14, when, when Jonathan says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that, that word steadfast love has said is, is God's kindness. It's, his, it's often used to, uh, to speak of his covenant love for the people of Israel. It's, a, it's not just a, a steadfast love is a good translation because it's not, some translations say kindness, and we can think of kindness as kind of a, a light thing. It's not just be nice. It's remember the deep kindness that has been done for you on the one hand and, and respond in kind with that kind of steadfast love. Now, Jonathan's not demanding this out of the blue, right? He's, he's not making it a condition of friendship that, that David do these good things for him. But instead... Jonathan recognizes that the real friendship creates debts of love. In, in, in uh, Romans, the Apostle Paul says to owe no one anything except love. Owe no one anything except love. And here, Jonathan is saying, David, there is a debt of love, and, and I'm calling for you to pay your end of it. Again, this isn't the condition of, of their love for one another, that they be good to each other in the future, but it is an overflow of that love that's already present, of that friendship that's there. There is definitely a, a debt that's created. Uh, in the book of Philemon, Philemon is an interesting little book. one page in my Bible. It's just a short little letter. Paul's writing it to this guy, Philemon, the room it's named, about his runaway slave, Onesimus, who had run away uh, and comes in contact with Paul, is converted under Paul's ministry, becomes uh, a dear son in the faith to Paul, 
And now Paul is sending this letter back by Onesimus' hand to Philemon and telling Philemon, let him go free. But it's interesting how he does it. Verse 8 of Philemon, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And he goes on, uh, verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. But Paul there has, has the authority of an apostle, and he says that. Like, I could just command you, Philemon, what to do. This man is now your brother in Christ. You should let him free. He should not be your slave anymore. That's not what your relationship as two brothers in Christ should be. But instead of commanding, Paul says, Now, Philemon, I want you to do the right thing. And I want you to do it out of love. And I want you to remember, you owe me your very life. You owe me, like, I'm the one through whom you heard the gospel. You got saved because I was preaching to you. Now I want you to do something that's going to refresh my soul by doing good, by doing what's right. Do you, do you have friends where you feel like you can call them out like that? Not, not even, it's, like, it's not a negative thing. It's just, uh, please don't forget to do good to me. That's, it seems really bold. And yet, that relationship is such, both in the case of Paul and Philemon and here David and Jonathan, where they feel like, I can call, I can call what's due and say, please, please hold up your end. It's not a condition of love, but the love produces a willingness to say, please hold up your end too. I don't, I don't think that's an excuse. Some people will hear that and twist it to, to be like, well, you should only have people in your life that are a net positive and just cut off all the people that are a drag on you. And that's clearly, that's not how Jesus walked through life. That's not what, what God wants us to do. But we should realize that, that those relationships where we are just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, just recognize that that's not the same thing as a good godly friendship. Like, you, we just need to have mental categories for, this is a person I'm just pouring into, and I expect nothing in return. Freely have you, you have received, freely give. And that's okay. That's a good thing to do. Jesus came and he emptied himself for our benefit. But we need friendships in our life that are reciprocal, that, we, that do pour life into us at the same time. So godly friendship is a, is a two-way street. The fourth characteristic of godly friendship is that it's not bound by time. It, it is not bound by time or place. Uh, so we know things don't go well for Jonathan in sounding out his father. His dad tries to pin him to the wall. He leaves in anger. Verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And he goes out and they 
takes the little boy, shoots the arrow beyond him, gives the signal to David that, yeah, you do need to run away. But then in verse 44, or 41 rather, as soon as the boy had gone, so, so Jonathan gives him his weapons, gives him his arrows, sends the boy back to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. These two guys, they're split up here at this point, and we don't ever get a reuniting story. The next time they're mentioned together is that 2 Samuel 1, after, after Jonathan is dead, Saul and his sons die in battle, and, and David is just weeping over the death of his dear friend. So next time they're mentioned side by side. The, the arc of this story for Jonathan does not end well. Da- David's story seems to like have this sweep back up, like a not comedy is in the sense of ha ha, but comedy is like it, it it goes towards a happy ending for David, and and yet this friendship seems to to end in tears. But true godly friendship, and this is one of probably the the greatest features of it. It's not just for this life. It, it's not something that, that goes until a certain point and then stops and is no more. But, but friendship that is truly centered on Christ, that, that's rooted in a, in a common love for God, is an eternal friendship. Um, 1 Corinthians 13.8, of course, says, Love never ends. I was just thinking about as these two guys are, are leaning on one another, weeping, not to see each other again in this life. It made me think of Revelation 21, which all believers in Jesus Christ will experience together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The the crying that, that comes, the pain that comes from separation from those whom we care about in this life, that separation has an expiration date. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, that separation will one day end. Uh, Valentine's Day, so I'll, I'll take a marriage turn on it and just here. I'm thinking about uh, a quote. I wish I would have written it down so that I nailed it. But it's uh, from Jonathan Edwards, the great early seventh. Uh, 18th century Puritan writer in, in New England. He he died pretty young in his 50s. But one of his, his last words to his wife, or to what his, his wife wasn't there, but he said, tell my dear Sarah that 
the uncommon union which was between us was of such a nature that I believe is spiritual and thus shall be eternal. I'm going to have to look up that exact quote and send it out. But, but just that, that idea that, that what was between us wasn't just a merely human friendship. There was a spiritual connection. And it goes on. It goes on forever. I, I think when we moved out here, my, my, probably my dearest friend in the world is a man who, it's a very Jonathan and David-like friendship where he's way older than I am. Um, he probably wouldn't like me using the word way there, but he's older than I am, <laughs> substantially. Uh, 16, 17 years older than me. And, man, that was the hardest thing about moving to me wasn't leaving my family, it was leaving Wayne. Uh, and I just bawled <laughs> the last time I hugged him before we left. And, and yet, I mean, obviously we still get to see each other, but, but that connection, while it won't ever be as close, you know, we're not going to spend... You know, we, we were together almost every day. And, but that's an eternal connection. That's an eternal relationship. And that's just something the rest of the world doesn't know. But I don't have a good conclusion for this other than we want other people to have that kind of friendship. And it starts with knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father God. We thank you that your word speaks truth to us. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have a friend who is closer than a brother, and we have a friend who, when when we put our hope in him to be our savior, to be the one who has paid for our sins, who has made us right with you, we don't just get that relationship with you, we, we get to come into your family. And you give us all kinds of brothers and sisters some of whom become very deep and dear friends. And Lord, would you help us to be those kind of friends to, to more people? We live in a, such an isolated age where we're so caught up in screens and in busyness. Help us to slow down and care about people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.